This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No guests, no preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 102. Of all the things to wish upon a person, Al Bender and the Men in Black. Now, the Men in Black mythos is far too involved for one episode, so today we're taking a look at their origins and focusing on Albert K. Bender. Maybe not the first person to encounter the Men in Black, but one with whom the concept will be forever connected. The Men in Black phenomenon has its roots in the earliest days of flying saucer culture, with the first appearance of what we would consider stereotypical Men in Black appearing after a sighting near Maury Island in Washington State back in June 47 at the dawn of saucerdom. However, Maury Island is not necessarily where the stories about the phenomenon began, and I could make an argument for Maury Island being sort of retconned into the MIB narrative later on. However, that's too boring a topic for even this show, so I'll stop. Right or wrong, in my view, it all goes back to a man named Albert K. Bender. Born in 1921, Albert Bender was the founder and head of an organization called the International Flying Saucer Bureau. Bender, however, was a strange guy even before he embarked on his saucer life. Uh, maybe the best example of this is Bender, who lived in his uh, with his stepfather in a large house in Bridgeport, Connecticut, had decorated the sort of third floor attic as a haunted house or chamber of horrors style space with sound effects playing on uh, record players and sort of bizarre, disturbing paintings on the wall and things like that. And he would invite co-workers and friends up to uh, up to see it. And he got he got, you know, really sort of excited when they would be, you know, terrified or startled by what they saw. It was such an interesting thing that it um, the story of it appeared as a local interest piece in the Bridgeport newspaper in May of 1952. And in this article, there's a great quotation from Bender that, that just sort of highlights his, his quirky weirdness at this point. When I was in the Air Force down in Virginia, I saw some real gruesome accidents. Once I took some bodies out of the water, it gave me a real kick. So while founding a, a flying saucer investigation organization is not as exciting as, as hauling bodies out of the river or whatever Bender was doing in the Air Force, it was actually much more, much more significant in the long run. The IFSB was an international network of hundreds of saucer spotters and investigators who interviewed witnesses, wrote reports, and sought an answer for the questions posed by unidentified flying objects. The organization produced a newsletter called Space Review, which is, is great. On, on the IFSB's stationery, it would say, Space Review. And under it, it said, I don't know if they thought this was sort of a catchphrase or something, Space Review reviews space, which I thought is just this, just the dumbest but sort of sweetest, sort of uh, bless your heart sort of, sort of thing to put. Um, <laughs> space Review summarized sightings uh, and featured articles in which people would speculate on where the saucers might come from and the intentions of those who controlled them, if any. 
It was founded in April of 1952, so right about the same time he's being interviewed for the Bridgeport paper about his House of Horrors. And uh, the IFSB was one of the earliest of the many, many saucer investigation organizations to appear and vanish during the second half of the 20th century. Today, uh, MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, is an example of the same sort of organization, although the uh, IFSB was much more credible. The significance of the IFSB comes almost entirely from its ending. And in the interest of time and staying relatively on topic, we're going to jump to that. In the October 1953 issue of Space Review, President Bender um, issued a proclamation, made a statement that would be um, pretty mysterious for people then and people now. Late Bulletin. A source which the IFSB considers very reliable has informed us that the investigation of the flying saucer mystery and solution is approaching its final stages. The same source to whom we had referred data which had come into our possession suggested that it was not the proper method and time to publish this data in Space Review. Statement of Importance. The mystery of the flying saucers is no longer a mystery. The source is already known, but any information about this is being withheld by orders from a higher source. We would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of the information, we are sorry that we have been advised in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. After that announcement, over the subsequent months, the IFSB would disband, Mentions of and speculation about flying saucers would disappear from Space Review as it um, sort of chugged through enough issues to finish out the subscriptions of members who didn't want a refund, of which there were apparently, you know, some. The IFSB and its president's paranoid comments fueled speculation that Bender had been somehow shut up or that he wanted to get out of the saucer life in the most dramatic way possible or that maybe he was running some kind of scam. All the discussion probably would have faded into the background noise of the whole 50s saucer craze if it hadn't been for the IFSB's chief investigator, West Virginian Gray Barker. Born in 1925, Barker was a native of Braxton County, West Virginia, and in 1952 got involved in investigating anomalous events by writing an article for Fate magazine on the Flatwoods monster that appeared in Braxton County. From there, he became a member of the IFSB, became its chief investigator, and started his own magazine, The Saucerian. From this grew a saucer publishing empire called Saucerian Books, which would publish hundreds of books and pamphlets. Barker will pop up here and there in a number of different topics we'll be exploring, so don't be surprised if uh, you hear his name more and more, and also don't be surprised if at some point there's sort of a long-form exploration of his work and significance. But for now... Let's look at the role he played in the earliest years of the Men in Black. After writing some articles about the IFSB collapse in the Saucerian, Barker turned the story of the IFSB's decline into a book that launched the notion of of sinister, organized suppression of flying saucer truth seekers. It was called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, and was published in 1956, and it details Barker's entry into the world of saucer investigation as well as his involvement with the IFSB. As the mystery surrounding the organization deepened, Barker and other members of the organization's leadership began to press Bender about what he knew. 
Bender-related, eventually, that after he learned the truth about the origins of the flying saucers, three men visited him and made him promise, quote, on his honor as an American, that he would not divulge what he knew. Whether or not three men actually did threaten Bender is, and probably always will be, unknown. They knew too much about flying saucers brings together not just Bender's story, but a number of other stories of saucer hunters being threatened or intimidated, and proposed a number of possible identities uh, for these troublemakers, from government agents to hoaxers to maybe even aliens themselves. The number of possible explanations means that the waters would be very muddy and would be for a long time about who the men in black might be. And part of the charm of They Knew Too Much is is that it blurs the line between reporting and storytelling. It's muddy for a reason. It's muddy because Parker isn't trying to argue what the men in black or the three men or the silencers, who or what they are. He's telling this story and creating this sort of open framework in which others can, can add to the story. He shifts between first, second, and third-person narration, uh, providing interludes that are that are really more like suspense novels than boringly straightforward saucer books that were popular at the time. Three men in black suits with threatening expressions on their faces. Three men who walk in on you and make certain demands. Three men who know that you know what the saucers really are. They don't want you to tell anyone else what you know. The answer hit you like a flash. One night, when you'd gone to bed after running all the theories through the hopper of your brain. You'd sat up in bed, snapped your fingers, and said, This is it. I know I have the answer. The next day, the theory didn't sound as convincing to you as it had the night before. Nevertheless, it was a good one, and you had certain data which would more than halfway prove it. You wrote this down and sent it to someone. When the three men came into your house, one of them had that very same piece of paper in his hand. They said that you, among the thousands working on the same thing, had hit pay dirt. You had the answer. Then they filled you in with the details. After they got through with you, you wish you'd never heard of the word saucer. You turned pale and got awfully sick. You couldn't get anything to stay on your stomach for three long days. Barker does not, as I say, provide any definite solution to the Bender mystery. By leaving things open, Barker played a role in ensuring that the men in black would be a going concern, at least in saucer circles, and and, and stories would continue to emerge and develop. Like I said, regardless of who or what may have threatened Bender, Barker asserts that events had taken place, the threats had taken place, and he creates this template that later Men in Black stories could follow. And while Barker would, um, in the decades to come, gain a reputation for embellishing and outright fabricating elements of this saucer story, um, they knew too much about flying saucers remains, uh, I think, in my opinion, the, the sort of gold standard of the Men in Black tale. There would be much weirder Man Black stories, especially uh, once John Keel um, releases the Mothman prophecies in the 1970s. But this book is just nicely sinister. It's cozy. It's interesting, and I love it. It's um, it's the only saucer book I have reread more times than I can count. And my favorite part, 
one of my favorite parts might be the last paragraph. There may be such things as flying saucers from space, and these things from space may have people or things in them that mean to do us harm. We can fight these things off somehow with bullets or prayers or some new invention that we are bound to come up with if we have to. I'm not alarmed about bug-eyed monsters, little green men, or Darrow who may or may not be shooting at us with rays from far underground. Something else disturbs me far more. There exist forces or agencies which would prevent us from finding out whether or not there are such green men or bug-eyed monsters or saucers with things in them. I have a feeling that someday there will come a slow knocking at my own door. They will be at your door too, unless we all get wise and find out who the three men really are. In the decades to come, Barker would gain a reputation for embellishing and outright fabricating elements of his saucer storytelling. But some of the dramatized account in They Knew Too Much is borne out by the primary sources, particularly correspondence between Bender and photographer August C. Roberts, a member of the IFSB's Department of Investigation. On September 14, 1953, Bender wrote to Roberts advising him, quote, not to accept any more memberships for IFSB until you read the October 15th issue of Space Review, end quote. This was the issue in which Bender warned saucer researchers to be cautious. Within days of that issue reaching readers, Bender would cut himself off from the world of saucer investigation. Bender wrote to Roberts in October, October 18th, 1953. May I please ask you, Augie, as a friend, not to ask me any more questions about the situation at hand. In a subsequent letter, Bender tells him, quote, If you are coming up to see me, please do not expect to discuss saucers in any way, shape, or form. I do not care to talk about this subject to anyone anymore. End quote. In a letter following up a visit between the two men, Bender wrote that he was, quote, very pleased with your visit, even though you did throw numerous questions at me. End quote. This is consistent with the tale Barker tells in They Knew Too Much. But there's a gap between the end of the IFSB in 53 and the emergence of Barker's book in 56. The correspondence between Bender and Roberts during that time indicates that some kind of men in black mythology had begun to develop. On August 2nd, 1954, Roberts wrote to Bender, August 2nd, 1954. I'm going to write the Bender story for the next issue of the Nexus. I know that you don't want it written, but as I understand from a very good source of information, you are planning to write a book about the saucers, three men, etc. I've held off writing the story all this time, but if you're planning to write a book, then I can't see why I should hold back now. I'm sure you will find my Bender story very interesting. I know many of our readers will. When you gave me the job on the investigating staff, I never thought that I would have to investigate you. Now, there's something interesting here. In what is a letter to Bender, Roberts refers to the emerging man in black narrative as, quote, the Bender story and my Bender story. Somehow, to me, this phrasing gives the impression that somehow the narrative of the three men, the silencers, the men in black, whatever, was beginning to exist independently of Bender himself. It's not your story. It's not um, what happened to you. It's the Bender story. 
Bender took exception to Robert's tone and his intentions and fired off a uh, pretty sharp reply. August 4th, 1954. Dear Mr. Roberts, in regards to your letter of August 2nd, may I say that since this is a free country and our freedom of the press has not been deprived of us, go right ahead and print anything you desire. But be sure that what you print is true and has proof to back it up. Otherwise, you might get yourself into difficulty. I considered your letter uncalled for, and I certainly must say that as long as I knew you, I have never said one thing against you and always thought well of you. Just because a person is unable to meet you on your terms is no excuse for you to assume that his intentions are not honorable. As for any book I intend to write, you had better check again, as that is the least of my thoughts, since my main worry at the moment is getting married in a couple of months. Rest assured that when I do write it, it won't be on any subject as nonsensical as the saucers. I know that you are definitely not the type of person to write a letter as you did after having met you. I certainly would never think so. Let your conscience be your guide in anything you may attempt to do or plan to write in the future. May I thank you for writing to me and hope that you are well. Very truly yours, Al Bender. But Bender would eventually write the Bender story. Sort of. Bender's 1962 book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, was published by Barker's Saucerian Press. And in it, Bender reshapes the men in black as sinister extraterrestrial visitors, as opposed to government agents or saucer-phobic law enforcement officers. In Bender's telling, while the men in black were responsible for the end of the IFSB, they were actually visitors from the planet Kaik, spelled K-A-Z-I-K, who possessed, among other things, flying saucers and Antarctic bases. Bender weaves a story which extends beyond the events surrounding the collapse of the IFSB. His experiences begin when walking home from a movie. He saw a bluish flash, in his words, and developed a headache and felt as though he were floating above the ground. He, quote, had the strong impression that somebody or something was telling me to forget IFSB, to give it up. As he tells the story of the International Flying Saucer Bureau and some of the sightings they investigated, he relates more incidents of bizarre headaches and feelings that somebody was watching him. Bender's experiences accelerated during an event called World Contact Day. According to Bender, members of the IFSB would, quote, attempt to send a message to the occupants of the saucers, if they exist, by the use of mental telepathy at a given time and If you want to recreate this yourself, the time and date was 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, March 15, 1953. All participants would concentrate on an identical message calling to the saucer people, assuring them of friendship, and asking them to, quote, be responsible for creating a miracle here on our planet to wake up the ignorant ones to reality. On the 15th, as he was mentally broadcasting this message, another massive headache overtook him. Bender experienced again a sensation of floating above himself during his attempted communication with the space people, and as he floated in pain, he received a message. We have been watching you and your activities. Please be advised to discontinue delving into the mysteries of the universe. We will make an appearance if you disobey. Why aren't you friendly to us? as we do not mean to do any harm to you. We have a special assignment, and must not be disturbed by your people. We are among you and know your every move, 
So please be advised, we are here on your earth. Bender's trance-like state ended, and he was once again alone, surrounded by an odor of sulfur and a quickly dissipating yellow mist. A few weeks later, Bender returned from a trip. Late at night, he had another experience. Three shadowy figures dressed in dark clothes and wearing Homburgs appeared in the room. They hovered a foot above the floor and told Bender they'd been observing his flying saucer investigations and told him he was, quote, a very good contact. They went on to say, You are an average person, and we know that what we tell you and show you will not be believed by anyone you might tell. Now, they'd never explain exactly why they want to tell somebody about themselves that nobody will believe. Um, That's kind of glossed over. But they go on to explain to Bender that their human-like appearance is an illusion. Quote, we also found it necessary to carry off Earth people to use their bodies to disguise our own. And they don't, then they don't explain the mechanism behind the process. But the horrific implications of this kind of body snatching echoes Bender's affinity for horror imagery, and it also echoes some science fiction movies of the time, of course. After the second, more in-depth experience, Bender's story begins to turn into more of a saucer-person contact story as he visits alien installations and interacts with them in a much less terrifying context. They showed no sign of strain as they carefully transported me down a long corridor to yet another panel. This opened to reveal a room aglow with a greenish light. They carried me inside, placed me on a strange-looking table reminiscent of a hospital operating table. I now became frightened, fearing all sorts of consequences. Was I to become a guinea pig? Perhaps to be cut up into little parts just to satisfy the curiosity of these people from space? Before I had much time for further imaginings as to my fate, my fright changed to embarrassment, as I felt their hands beginning to remove my clothing. I objected to this, but could do nothing to stop them, for I was stiff as a board. With great efficiency, they removed every stitch of clothing, leaving me naked as the day I was born. For a moment, all three of them stood there, looking at my body. But I believe the motive was not one of curiosity. They probably were checking to see if they missed anything, for one of them removed my watch. Two of them remained beside me as the other walked into the shadows and returned with a metal vial containing a liquid which they poured over my body. Then the three massaged the liquid into my skin. As they did so, my body became warm as if heat were being applied. They massaged every part of my body without exception, turning me over on my stomach and my sides. They expressed no emotion, neither that of revulsion nor enjoyment as they carried out the matter. Maybe unsurprisingly, Bender also seemed invested in the financial success of the book. At least that's how it seemed from a letter he sent to Barker in July of 62. July 21st, 1962. Dear Gray, I'm enclosing an order for more books and copies of Space Review. The books are selling very well, and I'm sure that I can get rid of 50 more easily. The comments I've been receiving lately are quite surprising. Everyone that reads the book reads it right through. It seems they cannot put it down until they finish. The vice president of Acme Shear called me on the phone today and told me how much he liked the book and is a firm believer. He wants another copy to send to a friend in England. I sure would like to hear from you and know just how things are going. I know you must be very busy, but I would like you to keep in touch with me and not leave me wondering what's taking place at your end. I'm sending a large mailing list to the group in Chicago, the Clark Publishing Company. They're going to send out circulars to all the names. 
How is the British publication coming along? Have you arranged any TV or radio shows yet? Gosh, Gray, as a personal friend, I thought for sure you would write more often and keep me posted. It seems that since now you have the book in your possession, I'm forgotten. I hope this is no indication of what's going to take place in the future. You haven't even returned any of the phone calls that I've made. Please get in touch with me soon, as it really is worrying when I don't hear. As always, Al. P.S. Have you any idea on what the first royalty check will be worth? Money aside, there's kind of a sad loneliness here, don't you think? That's how it seems to me. His tone suggests that Barker's friendship extended to their literary transaction, but not any further than that. And like the earlier letters between Bender and and people like Roberts, um, this gives me the impression that Bender valued his friendships with these guys, and they were just more focused on figuring out who the three men were. Bender, after the book came out, um, would sort of fade from the scene again. But a few years later, he would live out his saucer life in public one last time. It was 1967 at the National UFO Conference, and Bender was scheduled to speak. He wasn't able to appear in person, but he sent an audio tape lecture that mostly covered the ins and outs of life on the planet Kaik. He also discussed changes in his life due to his experiences with the beings from Kaik. He hadn't just been made immune to dangerous diseases. Bender had gained an extraordinary and frightening array of mental powers. Oh, yes. Yes, he had. Um, I've got two clips uh, that feature stories, and um, these are... They're a little longer, but you've you've got to listen, because this is strange stuff. Love on Kayak is free love, as there is no such thing as marriage. No one raises a family of children. This is all undertaken by a special group that works in the vault where the eggs are kept. The strangest thing of all to me was the fact that all people on Kayak resemble each other in their own respective sex. A male would have no reason to want another mate that is more beautiful or charming because they are so much alike in features. While I was under the power of these people from the planet Cake, I was subjected to a ray which emitted a powerful ultraviolet type of light. They told me that I would be protected from any earthly disease and that I would be given a power that would come gradually. This power was to be realized sooner than I anticipated. Already I am frightened to death of what I have already accomplished with this uncanny force that has been planted in my body. The power brings no good to myself, but only aids me in bringing harm to my enemies. It is an evil thing, and I cannot control it when it overtakes me. It started with many small things which at first seemed only coincidence, but then as they continued to happen, I began to get worried. At the office, for instance, where I worked in Bridgeport, many times people will get you provoked with the work at hand. Perhaps many of you have had this happen, and you say things under your breath about the boss, a fellow employee, or so on. Well, it started with small things such as this. For instance, a fellow employee got me in trouble with the works manager, and I was called into his office. After the lecturing from the executive, I went back to my office, and after a throbbing in my head and a strange feeling of floating, I wished this fellow employee would have an accident. About two days later, he fell out of a tree and injured his back, keeping him out of work for three weeks. 
While living in uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut, I used to ride the bus to work each morning. And of course, all buses had signs inside stating that no smoking was permitted. I'm a bit allergic to cigar smoke, and if I'm near it, I get a feeling of nausea. I complained to an individual on the bus one morning that he should put a cigar out because it bothered me, but he only said that if it bothered me, I should move to another seat. This I did, but the very next morning when he got on the bus, he sat in front of me again, although there were, no, there were plenty of other seats. I tapped him on the shoulder and asked him politely if he would put it out, but he said no. I then went to see the driver and told him about it. The driver then turned and told the individual to put out a cigar. He did, but the very next day he started all over again. He kept this up continually whenever he found a seat empty in front of me or in back of me. The evil began to build up in my mind, and every time I thought of him, terrible thoughts crept into me, of all things to wish upon a person. I wished he would burn himself severely with his cigar. About a week later, I noticed him missing from the bus, and each morning thereafter he did not show up. I gathered he was on vacation, so I felt relieved to know that I would not be bothered from the cigar smoke for at least two weeks. The next week, he still was not on the bus, and I asked someone on the bus about him, and they seemed surprised that I did not know about it. He had burned to death in his apartment when his mattress caught on fire from a cigar. Then I remembered having seen an article somewhere in the paper about a death by smoking in bed, but never connected with him since I did not know his name. Again, I was shocked to think that I had wished this thing upon him and that, and that it really materialized. Did I cause it or not? I still don't know. Another incident that almost certainly proved to me that I must have had some power to cause the occurrence took place in 1964. A person in the Bridgeport area that was to me a real friend came to me around Christmas time and wanted to borrow a sum of money as he was in dire need of cash. I felt sorry for him since it was the holiday season and drew money out of the bank and gave it to him with the promise that I would get it back within a reasonable time, of course. Two months went by and I did not see or hear from him. I made a call at his home and his wife would always say he was out. I finally met him on the street one day and he tried to avoid talking to me. But I went up and grabbed him by the arm and asked him what was wrong. He didn't say anything at first and then I asked him outright why he didn't stop around about the money I had loaned him. He then said outright, I don't know what you are talking about. I never got any money from you. At this he walked away and I didn't see him again. I tried calling his home by phone, but could never get an answer. This bothered me so much that a strange malice began to develop inside me. My head throbbed and pained every time I thought about him. And what he had done to a friend, evil thoughts entered my mind, and I wished to do terrible things to him. I would lie in bed at night, and as these thoughts took control, I kept hoping that he would suffer a terrible death of all things. I know, I know that this sounds horrible, but these things were not my real intentions, but this evil thing was building up in my mind, and I couldn't rid myself of it. This monstrous desire continued to develop, and about two weeks later, this person, while driving on the parkway one Sunday evening, fell asleep at the wheel and ran off the road after hitting an abutment and ended up in a clump of trees. He was hidden from the view of the road, and no one had witnessed the accident. He was pinned in the car and could not move. Yet one of his main arteries had been severed. He died from loss of blood before he was discovered. 
I was staggered by this incident when I read about it in a newspaper. Did I or didn't I have something to do with this man's death? I could not rightly know. I had wished this upon him, but did not dream that it would take place. To be honest, as much fun as I find these stories, Bender seems unwell and extremely paranoid in these. Um, he doesn't sound like he's acting about all of it. I think some horrible coincidences had taken place, and Bender might have started to believe that he had something to do with it. Or he's a better actor than I give him credit for, and this was all part of his shtick. Um, there's a link to the entire speech in the show notes, and you need to check it out. It is awesome. And I will proudly acknowledge that I've had, I never got any money from you, as my text notification for over a year now. I get really strange looks when it goes off at meetings. Or when it goes off anywhere else, really. So there are some hints throughout the speech that Bender was planning on writing another book all about the world of Kayak. The book never actually appeared. Bender would retire from the saucer scene quickly and quietly. In 1965, he had founded the Max Steiner Music Society and devoted his efforts to preserving the music of the film score, Legend. He refused to talk about his saucer life until his natural life ended at the age of 94 on March 29, 2016. The Men in Black, of course, would go on, and Bender could not have known what he was unleashing. If he did unleash it, um, Barker's role is, you know, significant, as we'll see. There's still speculation as to what really did happen to Bender, and, and it doesn't help any search for the truth that Gray Barker had this reputation as a hoaxer and embellisher, or if you're feeling really uncharitable, a liar. Um, it's like saying, hey, Stephen King, that this book isn't real, you're a liar. Um, I guess Barker did portray some of these things as real, but it was flying saucers. Nobody should have taken it for face value, I don't think. Anyway, here's the question. How much of the Men in Black story was Bender's and how much was Barker's? With regard to Flying Saucers and the Three Men, which Barker heavily edited and shaped, we may never actually know. Barker's role in the Men in Black mythos cannot be overstated. References to the suppressors of saucer truth would riddle his newsletters. He would write a second book on the subject in the early 1980s called Men in Black, The Secret Terror Among Us. So what? if anything, do we do with Albert K. Bender? To me, Bender seemed like somebody who had found a niche in the IFSB, got overwhelmed, bugged out, and years later began to miss it, mostly because of the friends he made through his investigations. Why did he eventually drop it all completely? I think, or at least I want to believe, that he was able to leave it behind because with his wife and family and his work with the Max Steiner Music Society, he'd finally found a place. He wasn't the weird guy who built a haunted house in his stepdad's attic and made his work friends come over and see it. He wasn't the wannabe saucer big shot commanding an army of investigators or the one human to which the three men in black chose to reveal themselves. He was just Al Bender, and he had traded his saucer life for a real life that was more fulfilling than all the wonders of Kayak. We hope you return next time when we go to Braxton County, West Virginia and visit the Flatwoods Monster. We'll see how Gray Barker got to start writing about the world of the paranormal and go on location to the Flatwoods area. Yeah, that's right, on the road. In the meantime, thanks for listening. 
You can follow along at saucerlife.wordpress.com and on Twitter at saucerlife. Or you can email us at thesaucerlife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. If you could rate The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, and anywhere else, that'd be great. Sharing and retweeting are also much appreciated. Help this week came from the Clarksburg Harrison Public Library in West Virginia, where David Houchin oversees the Gray Barker Collection. If you're ever in the area, be sure to visit. If you're not in the area, find an excuse and just go to West Virginia. It's a great resource. Thanks also to Paul Kimball, who invited me to come talk about the Men in Black back in 2016 at the East Coast Para Conference in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. Uh, thanks also to Kurt Collins, who warned me of the dangers of featuring that song by the Buchanan Brothers every episode. Uh, Kurt writes on uh, various uh, saucer issues, largely centering around the uh, 1980s Cash Landrum case at blueblurrylines.com and on saucer history at the saucers that time forgot.blogspot.com. Finally, and I forgot to mention him last time, thanks to the semi mysterious Dr. D for help with planning and production. The Saucer Life is a Chizo Media production, so till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. Maybe the